0: Welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, a.k.a. Old Man Morin, and we are back with one of my favorite authors of bolt-action books. Uh, This gentleman has penned the Battle of the Bulge book and the New Guinea book. Now, both of those books are chock full of new, exciting units, great missions, uh, clearly a lot of research went into those books, new army lists, so much cool stuff. But unlike some books, you know, everything in that book flows brilliantly. You know, sometimes you look at a unit and you go, eh, where am I going to use that? Like, is that, is that, or you might go, wow, that's really good. I'm going to use that in my next game. Um, these units are so well balanced and so smooth. They just sort of slide into your army list. And the army lists that are in the books are just wonderful to play with. Uh, I cannot say enough good stuff about this guy's work. So it is a great pleasure to welcome Mark to the Warlord cast. Mark, welcome.
1: Hello. What, a, what an intro. No pressure then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, man. <laughs> now, the pressure is after the first book with the second book, if it, if it holds up. But your first two oh. are down, man. So the pressure's off. Yeah. You, you just got this
1: the difficult second album yeah it's um yeah there was actually i suppose because battle of the bulge um yeah the feedback i had was uh was was really productive um Mm -hmm. and and yeah a lot of the lessons we learned from that moved on to new guinea and likewise um battle of france in, in a lot of ways is a consolidation of those two it's moving in very similar lines with that same community input
0: Fantastic. Well, one of the things that I really liked about when you got going with New Guinea was that you actually um, reached out to the community and you said, hey, guys, um, I, I, I wrote Battle of the Bulge. Uh, I'm writing New Guinea. Can I get some feedback about people who might know more about these battles than I do? I've done a, quite a lot of research, but I know there's experts out there. Can people help me out? How did you find the community um, outpouring when you made that request?
1: Uh, so really, really encouraging. It, it was cracking. Um, I mean, because the, th- the thing about New Guinea and Battle of France from uh, a British British guy's point of mm. view. Uh- completely different things to look at in the, um, kind of growing up in Britain with the history lessons we have here, people have got a, a rough appreciation of the Battle of France, there's mm. war movies that sort of stuff, so people kind of know but New Guinea, you know that's something that happened on the other side of the world uh, and that was uh, you, you know, Australia and America in a, a huge bitter fight against Japan, mm. so that's not as well known over here at all, so it was it was great to to kind of get all of this help from guys in Australia in America, even in Japan as well, mm. who had relatives who fought who could give um, you know first hand accounts from their relatives to say here's here 's what I was told here's, uh you know, you know the input that they had uh, and, and it was fantastic and then you 've always got with bolt action which I kind of say in after, after any of these books it 's a balancing act in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and one of the main balancing acts is trying to make it appeal to the the, the, the two extremes. a hard and fast tournament player mm-hmm. and you're out-and-out historic player. And sometimes those two different philosophies don't match up. So you've got to try and write something which is going to be broad brush and is going to appeal to everyone. Uh, I'm in, in the historic side of things, definitely. I don't know tournaments well at all. So it was great to have loads of input from tournament players to say, look, if you put that unit out as you've done it, someone could exploit that and you Mm -hmm. could break the game. So, So to have that kind of input coming back was absolutely invaluable.
0: Nice, yeah, it is fantastic. I mean bolt action is just one of those really cinematic games, um, and so I could see that being quite the trick um balancing both you know people's first hand account well maybe not first hand accounts second hand accounts from family members, yeah. um, and then doing the actual um, book research behind things and the discrepancies between um so not only are you trying to balance you know narrative play versus competitive play, but you're also trying to balance. You know stories that have been passed down versus actual research, and I don't envy you with, with that job at all. But you always seem to come out with just just fantastically um, the the stories are really narrative, um, and the books sort of walk you through the campaign.
1: Oh, it's very nice of you to say. Um, the I guess uh, speaking to some of the authors, uh, some of the other authors, two who leap to, to mind in particular, it's quite interesting comparing notes because. Uh, When these other books come out, it's kind of like, you know, it's not not people you know particularly well, but they're your mates and Mm -hmm. you're rooting for them and you want everyone else's books to do well. But it's interesting to see that there's different parts we find difficult. Um one of the other guys who, who is, is on you know the podcast quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh he can uh hit scenarios out the park. For me, that's the hardest part is writing the scenarios. Whereas the actual narrative uh and the historical research, for me that's the easiest part. Got it. Uh, although I'm tempting fate saying that because uh you know, there's always the uh there's always the chance you'll drop a ball and make a mistake somewhere, and we all do in places. But um because of my background with writing I'd done a fair bit of that beforehand uh, so for me uh, yeah keeping that flow going is something that fortunately I had a little bit of experience with before um, writing the units sticking new units in there's, there's there's quite a formulaic approach to it so that's mm. that's by and large okay for most of it although you know when you start to do things like intelligence officers chaplains and things like that you are you're playing with fire and it can back it can it can go wrong if you're not careful. Um but yeah, the scenarios I, I I find very difficult to put together, and I get a lot of help from the community with that side of things
0: nice well i I particularly like some of the the units that you mentioned because things like the chaplain, things like the intelligence officer, things like the um the the military police, those units that you added in um they're very game changing but they're also not game breaking, which is what you were talking about earlier uh which is uh, it's such the balancing act but um i am I'm, I'm assuming that you had play testers for that to make sure that that um i know that you had people looking at it but um how much play testing did you put into that because that's one of those questions that players always ask it's like well how much did people yeah. actually play test this
1: well the play testing system we have it, it's evolved from book to book mm. to start off with with battle of the bulge uh it was predominantly but not exclusively it was predominantly carried out by a, uh, a a play test group in uh, in the states, oh. uh, and these guys were were kind of taking a scenario and then taking two or three tables. Uh, and spending a whole weekend absolutely thrashing a scenario and new units nice. and then the, 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 the pages of written feedback uh, and this is the thing that when i get, bring playtesters in to say that you, by all means rip it apart say it doesn't work but what we need as the authors is to say well how do you fix it so mm. we need recommendations to say look here's how i here's two or three options as to how you can make your concept work um and when we then went on to new guinea instead of having like one really detailed playtest group it went out to more mm-hmm. and it became a real management challenge that you're then there with spreadsheets saying scenario one has been play tested by groups a d and f <laughs> uh a and d have agreed on this but f disagrees here and you and you end up managing absolutely loads of feedback um which is which is it's very time consuming but mm. ultimately I used to play test my own stuff and that's useless because you're marking your own homework. Because if I, yeah. if I don't don't see errors when I'm writing it, then I won't see errors when I'm play testing it. So there's no point in me play testing my own stuff. Uh, it's got to go to a completely independent, fresh set of eyes. And that's how we do it. And with battle of France, uh, it escalated again. Um, it was, uh, it, it was, yeah, play test groups from all over the world. Uh, absolutely loads of them. Um, So, uh, so yeah, it was, that was, um, that, that was kind of pretty much took as long as writing the book was managing the play testing and the feedback.
0: Nice. Well, that's a nice segue then let's get into the actual, the new book itself, the battle for France. Now we've had some, uh, some books that have covered some of this material before Germany strikes, uh, immediately springs to mind, uh, and to a degree, some of the, um, what if, um, Battle of Britain kind of books as well, Sea Lion, uh, those kind of books, kind of were early war as well. This is particular though. This is far more. This is a zoomed in look, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, when this title was first sent my way, uh, I, but that was literally my first bit of feedback was, hasn't Germany Strikes already covered this? Right. Uh, so, so there was definitely a concern. But looking into Germany strikes, yeah, it's um, it, it's looking further afield. It isn't just the Battle of France. Mm. So it was a case of what well, can we can we zoom in in a similar way to um, you know, Battle of the Bulge, uh, and some of the scenarios in there had been done before. So I thought, well, you know, can, can we do this? Can we make it work? Mm-hmm. And I was asked the question, look, if you don't think you, uh, this, this can work, we'll we'll maybe look elsewhere. So uh, it is. So it's my fault. I said yes, I can make this work. <laughs> So um, if if anyone's looking for a culprit, I'll take that one on the chin and say, ultimately, the decision rested with me. Uh, I didn't choose the title, but I said, yes, I can make it work. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it does. I think it does. And, 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 yeah, it's a a much zoomed in look um, at the Battle of France uh, and and a lot more aspects of it.
0: Well, fantastic. Let's let's take a look then, because um, going, as I mentioned earlier, going through your previous works, um, you tend to walk us through a campaign. Um, So where does this story begin? Because your books are very narrative. Um, Where where are we, where historically does the timeline start?
1: Well, um... The timeline starts really with the kind of limited bubbling hostilities which were going on along the the Franco-German border prior Mm. to the actual invasion itself. So the Phoney War, people will be familiar with the term, the Phoney War. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, that's uh, as in that's the the British version of it. In Germany, it was known as the Sitzkrieg, uh, although I think that may have come come later as a term. Um, but yeah, the the phony war was basically saying we've declared war, world war has, has occurred. Mm -hmm. But, um, given that it was mainly Northwest Europe at this point, although, you know, there's obvious obvious arguments for what was going on with Japan and China at the time, it was very full blown war, but from a Western European point of view in a quite insular way, it was like, here's our world war. And uh, for the the, the kind of traditional land-based war, not a great deal was going on at certain elements. Now, yeah, from the naval historian's point of view, there was no such thing as the Phony War. The naval war was fully fledged from the word go. But um, for, for what was going on in uh, in Northwest Europe, mm-hmm. you've got the Germans set up along their border, the French set up along theirs, the Belgians set up along theirs, etc. Uh, the British sending the British Expeditionary Force, and say mm-hmm. we're here to bolt things. Uh, more of that later. And the mm-hmm. uh, massive discrepancy between the British history books and the French ones, which was very interesting to get into. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and yeah, and there's almost kind of a staring at each other across the line, seeing who's going to make a first move. But there was isolated, small-scale skirmishes, and that's what the first scenario is about. Mm -hmm. So it's it's that phony war. Things haven't kicked off in earnest yet. But, you know, there's still, in the phony war period, hundreds of casualties. So there was still fighting, Mm. just not the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, which would be coming very shortly.
0: Right. Nice. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't the Italians also involved in that time period, or am I making that up?
1: Uh, the Italian invasion of France, uh, that came a little bit later. Ah. So the the cynic would say that once Germany had uh, done all of the hard work and taken the brunt of uh, France's might, which mm-hmm. was considerable, the Italians went brilliant. Let's go in uh, via the back door and, uh, and and take a bit for ourselves so the Italians did, uh, came in later uh, and even then it didn't go very well
0: now growing up going to American schools um, i I often heard history teachers uh, bemoan uh, French efforts in World War two um, and thankfully I, I come from a half a French background and my father's a history teacher so I, I definitely learned that that was not the case but um, but for those who do sort of think that um, you know the, the French uh, con- contribution to World War II as a country uh, during the invasion lasted about fifteen minutes, um, can you please uh, explain then the scope of this book? If the uh, the battle for France is uh, a bit longer than that,
1: oh uh, but yeah, delighted to. I mean. Um... When I first started uh, writing historical, um, yeah, non-fiction sort of stuff, mm-hmm. um, I, I was of that same mindset. I'd been duped by the the British education system, which mm-hmm. very much puts that message across, uh, and it's just not true. It's um, it's not even close to true. Right. The, uh, the you know the French fighting man or, or the French army. Now, fair enough, they they had large elements uh, which were reservists mm-hmm. and weren't as well trained, equipped, etc. But pound for pound, your your average French fighting man was the best in the world. He was right up there with uh, with with Germany. And you look at the French armored units as well. That um. French tanks were absolutely fantastic. The problem was how they were deployed and how mm-hmm. they were used. Um, so, uh, and uh, you know, again, um, there's this kind of British fallacy that basically the French were just losing and it was all going horribly wrong. The British Expeditionary Force came came across, held the line valiantly, but it, it was it was just too little, too late, and the French had already lost the war. So the British then had to, to carry out a staged withdrawal that's not true that's british propaganda in world war 2 uh, and that's not at all the uh the french held the line they did um but you know it's the battle of france to me isn't a story of the failings of the french it's a story of the outstanding capabilities of the germans Mm. It's it's uh, it's about how well the Germans did, not how badly the French did, although it's you know, there's there's always going to be different elements and different aspects to it. And I think there's a quite a big argument to say the French fighting man was betrayed and badly let down by the 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 higher echelons of their leadership, Mm. uh, particularly particularly. So, if if you did want to point a finger at the French, I'd say you'd be looking at the uh, at the politicians and the general staff rather than the fighting men on the front line.
0: There you go. So let's get back to the battlefield for bolt action. Then, so it sounds like this is a book that will be filled with scenarios where we have a lot of those uh, those heroic uh, defenses um, and resistant movements um, to to stymie the German advance. Um, would that be the case, or
1: yeah, um, the uh, that is kind of a theme running through it, in that um, by and large, for you know, for, for the vast majority, mm. uh, the axis player will be the attacker, and mm-hmm. the allied player will be the defender, and also given uh, again that british slant of the battle of france of all right so this was about the british expeditionary force with a bit of french guys on the side i've really tried to steer away from that in this book this book for the allied player is predominantly french so it, it is aimed at the guy who has bought a early war french army that's that's you know what, what the focus is there's still a lot of british content in there you know we've mm-hmm. we've gone years of bolt action somehow without british engineers ever appearing so <laughs> that was like well let, let's let's get him in there right um, so yeah there's still uh, new british units but yeah certainly the focus as you say is germany and uh, to a smaller extent italy being the aggressor being the attacker and the french sometimes british sometimes belgian player holding the line
0: Fantastic. Oh, that just the 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 scope of this is just opening up in my mind and I'm seeing the battles as they unfold. Um, All right. So clearly, though, there there may be some exceptions to this rule. Are there just a few little historical anecdotes of um, things that you tried to squeeze into scenarios that you think uh, the listener would be interested in hearing about?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's uh, yeah, there's still some uh, where it's where it's the other way round. One, for example, I'm just scrolling through to see if I can uh, find the one I'm looking for particularly, which is Frankforce. Um, Mm. Which uh, where are we? Which people will have heard of anyway? It's quite a famous uh, armoured engagement, which is yeah, the Arras counterattack. Now, what this this is now I've I've here said how it's all French focus here i am now talking about the british mm-hmm. um so, so this was a british counter-attack which was um main it, it was based mainly around uh matilda tanks uh, actually a lot of it was matilda ones uh, as opposed to the matilda two which most people know and love yeah but um, the iris counterattack was a, a a really good example of winning the battle losing the war it uh it was successful in some uh, places in that you know there was a uh, an Allied advance against the Germans, but ultimately it achieved very little uh, and succeeded in the British losing a lot of their armor. It's the yeah the, the sort of the, the famous anecdote a lot of people have heard of of uh, Rommel mm-hmm. of when he brought in the 88 millimeter anti aircraft guns to fire them open sights against British armor because stuff was just bouncing off the Matilda twos. They, uh, You know, people kind of associate that, that kind of um, impervious tanks and stuff bouncing off them with Tigers, King Tigers, etc. Yeah. But actually, in 1940, it was very much the Allied tanks. It was the Chars and the, and the Matildas, which the Germans really feared, and they had to outmaneuver in the end. Uh, it, but, the uh, yes, yeah, so, so the British and French tanks, some of them at least, um, were very heavily armoured, uh, and, and that led in part to this German requirement of we need to get more 88s onto the battlefield. Uh, and some historians, depends on which ones you read, some will say that uh, this is was one of the direct links to the Tiger being developed.
0: Oh, that's fantastically interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, that's, oh, ah. I'm more. I'm more intrigued by the second. Um, all right. So you 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 talked about French and German forces. Clearly, you also yeah. mentioned British. Now you did say Italians. Now I'm an Italian yes. player. Is there is there stuff for me in there?
1: Um, scrolling at the end, right at the end, or well, or close to the end, mm-hmm. there's uh there's a couple of scenarios which I'm just going to see because I've still got the. Uh, the word documents at this stage rather than the, uh, the proofs, which oh. should be arriving very soon. Um, in fact, I believe after all that, yeah, the, the, there's, yeah, there's, there's one in particular. So the, the Italian input is, um, yeah, for, for Italian players. So I'm not duping anyone. It's not, it's not a huge, uh, Italian input, mm-hmm. but, uh, Battle of the Alps uh, is what we're looking at—the eleventh scenario. So, mm-hmm. which is when, um, in late June, eighty thousand Italian soldiers came plunging through the Alps. Now, what's quite different about this is that it's a—it's um, one of the few, well, one of the only scenarios, off the top of my head, I've written, other than a couple in Battle of the Bulge, actually, where uh, ski soldiers are going to be at a massive advantage. Nice. So. If um, yeah, if, if you've got uh, you know an army with with skis, then th- this is something that you're going to be able to use it for. Um, and it, it's pitting the um, oh, uh, as we talked about earlier, we're into pronunciation, which is always scary stuff. Yes. Uh, but the, um, the the French chasseur alpine against their Italian counterparts. It's basically a narrow, a couple of mountain passes, uh, which the the French and Italians are fighting against. Uh, and the the Italians are in the unenviable position where they're basically their forces have been sent in without the uh, pre- preparation for for cold weather fighting. Ooh. So so similar to Battle of the Bulge, the Italians may suffer casualties before you even start.
0: Oh, that's brutal. But I mean, that's fantastic that the Alpini are finally seeing um, attention in a book because we have the entry in the uh, in the. Armies of Italy book, but I don't think I've ever seen anyone actually field Italian uh, mountaineers whatsoever and it would be fantastic to see that as a themed force.
1: Yeah, yeah. for, for, for this scenario, whilst uh, on this scenario there's no new units per se, uh, both the French and the Italian player do get a new theatre selector. Awesome. So there is a dedicated chasseur alpine reinforced platoon and for the Italians um, just finding the title of it um, yeah, Italian army group West reinforced platoon. So, um, yeah, there are at least those, uh, if you wanted to have more of a, a winter snowy feel to your early war Italian or French, there's uh, there's the options for it there.
0: Nice. Why well, I'm assuming then if there's those theater selectors that we're going to get some other theater selectors from across the book. Uh, are there any uh, that you want to tease or, uh, interesting new ways to field your bolt action army?
1: Yeah um there's a couple of armored ones in there there's uh, nice. but I think one of the um one of the more interesting ones for people who want something a little bit more left field and mm-hmm. a little bit different is uh reconnaissance motorbike platoons Ooh. uh particularly with sidecars in the at this stage of the war um, it was still kind of thought that it was a tactically quite a good idea to send in legions of motorbikes and sidecars with weapons on them. <laughs> so we've got uh, the options now to add light mortars to motorbike-sidecar combos. Wow. Uh, and so, um, now, uh, and again, these can't be fired on the move. That sh- I, I should uh, state that right now, that okay. these weren't kind of Hell's Angels leaping <laughs> around wheelies whilst firing mortars out of sidecars it was very much a way to transport a mortar into position mm-hmm. uh but um the french german and british players have all got uh, options now to arm up and and have armies uh, sorry yeah, have forces which are based around uh reconnaissance motorbike units nice uh so that something different um what else have we got yeah for um for the British player uh, which led on to a, uh, another good one for the for the Germans uh, there's the Grenadier guards. So whilst the early war uh, British stuff tends to be sort of very inexperienced, there were units who, uh, due to kind of interwar policing and peacekeeping, had a little bit more experience than others. Um, so the Grenadier Guards, whilst not an elite unit, uh, it gives the British player a little bit more options in that early war scenario for if you want slightly better experience levels and a little bit more clout. Um So once I showed that to some of the other playtesters and some of the other people working, uh, my man in Germany, uh, who who anyone will know from the forums, Invisible Officer, who's who's just uh, absolutely fantastic, Mm -hmm. a treasure trove of knowledge, he said, well, there's a German equivalent, uh, which is the 9th Infantry uh, from Potsdam. So uh, working with him, I made a theatre selector for the Germans as well, which is this very Prussian very, um, you know, you know, This unit with a whole load of pedigree and heritage, which is only the only very best. And so likewise, the Germans have got an equivalent now. for us. It's not an elite unit, it's not a special forces unit, but it's a, um, it, it's a cut above the normal.
0: Nice. Oh, that'll be fantastic. Because a lot of the times with early war armies, you see a lot of inexperienced and regular troops. It'll be nice to see some of those elite um, or cut above units, as you say.
1: Yeah, that's, um, yeah that, that's certainly the plan with it. Um, there, there's still certainly, though, because uh, I know uh, speaking to quite a few players, some guys like to, in, instead of um, having a generic, here is, for example, a German infantry platoon late war, which could be Eastern Front, could be Western Front, could be mm-hmm. whatever. Some people really like to say, here is an a moment in time. Here is an mm-hmm. absolute uh, real zoom in uh confrontation and i want to model my army on that uh so for that for example we've got the very last scenario uh was after the french surrender there was a lot of french units that weren't happy to take that on the chin and carried on fighting so these were uh whilst they were military units they were still very much the sort of the first acts of organized resistance and one of these came at the defence of. pronunciation again here we go the defense of Saumur, where uh colonel michon was in charge uh he was the camp commandant effectively of a french cavalry officer academy and he got all of his uh, officer cadets together and dug in and said we're not giving up um and so there's a theater selector which is based around uh french officer cadets so guys in their late teens who are training to be uh, junior lieutenants but haven't f- finished their training yet, who, uh, who who dusted off a whole load of training weapons and World War I weapons and dug in and went out to face the Germans after the surrender. So that's wow. quite an, an interesting theater selector to use if, if people wanted to do something really different.
0: Yeah, that would be incredibly interesting, especially since, as you say, it happened after the surrender. Um, just that, that, you know, resisting no matter what, oh, that's just one of those awesome little historical notes that is always fantastic to explore on the bolt action tabletop.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, again, for those, uh, you know, for people who've been duped by the propaganda, uh, the, the French did not give up easily. The French went down fighting. Um, and, uh, you, you only need to look at the casualty figures for that, that again, um, British deaths, 5,000, which is very tragic. And I'm not belittling the British effort Mm. at all here. I'm just simply just trying to put it in context. Mm. 5,000 British deaths. uh, And um, uh, then you look at the French side of things, which is 120,000 dead, 230,000. So i don't think anyone could ever assume uh, could ever accuse uh, an army which has had 120,000 dead of of not digging in and fighting mm. uh, they they very much did
0: absolutely and i mean the french at that point they they had been they'd come off of world war 1 as one of the victors they were very proud um coming from a french family I, I know this um very proud of and very nationalistic uh at that point um and very you know as i said proud of being French and they weren't going to take anyone invading their country lightly. Um, so yeah, to, to assume that people dropped their rifles and ran away is <laughs> it's more than a little insulting.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and, and looking through the first-hand accounts of that, there are British accounts mm. of French soldiers dropping their rifles and running away. There are French accounts of British soldiers dropping their rifles mm. and running away. So, so yeah, it, um, it all depends on where you look and i think right. uh, and no doubt if uh, if the question had arisen i'm sure there'll be plenty of accounts of, of of the same from from the german soldiers as well when they meet stiff opposition these things happen in war uh, there's accounts of it in pretty much every um any battle you look at but uh, yeah, the, the French have ended up, uh, I think it's just the sheer surprise of the fact that the French military, uh, certainly the French army was considered the most powerful army in the world, mm-hmm. and so it's such a surprise um, that the surrender came so quickly. But again, uh, you'd, you'd kind of need to look at the French political setup rather than the tactical level military setup yeah. to get your
0: answer to that one. Definitely. Well, one of the things that I've loved about your books has always been the new units. Uh, and as I talked about before, you like to put in units that change the game, uh, but don't break the game. Now, huh, mm, no pressure, but I'm, it's one of the things I'm looking forward to with this this book quite a lot. Now you've already mentioned some really exciting new units. Uh, for example, I know that I'm going to be using a um, adding some British engineers to my uh, Sikh army, uh, even though that's in the Desert War, um, because I know that there were engineers there. We just never had the entry for it. Um, given that this is the Battle of France um, and this is Germany on the attack, I know that we've had um, German pioneers in the past. So I'm assuming they're going to be there. Uh, what, what, what can we look forward to? What are some of the new, the new units that uh, you mentioned, motorbikes with light mortars? Do we get new stuff beyond that?
1: Yeah, there's, there's quite a few, and this is in absolutely no particular order. This mm. is literally me scrolling through the uh, mm-hmm. the last draft Word document and just looking for new units as they pop up. So uh, fifth columnists for the French, uh, well, it's more for the Germans, really. Yeah. So what, what is, yeah, you, you, you're totally right that the um, the antagonism towards the German invasion from the French was was very strong, as mm. you'd expect. But not exclusive, and there was certainly a, um, a core of people within the far right uh, within France who invited the were very you know, welcoming of the German invasion and took up arms um, against the Allies. So, in certain scenarios, the Germans can now have uh, these little two-man units with Molotov cocktails and rifles who can forward deploy um, uh, and uh, you know, basically sneaky uh civilians who were uh fighting against their own that's fascinating
0: so, i mean we've seen partisan units in allied armies before we've seen them yeah. um in the in soviet forces for example um and yet when we yet we know that there were people who aided the germans but we haven't outside of the sea lion campaign books we haven't really seen anything that would encompass that so it's awesome that that's in there
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's something a little bit different. Mm. Um, other stuff we've got, um, other new units from, whilst we've been talking about trying to give early war players some uh, some units with some more clout, there's also still plenty of lower level units. So, for example, for the French, uh, French Navy, so French Matlow squads, which are on the uh, coastal positions and in port mm. towns, there were French sailors who their ships were alongside. Who were told basically go grab a rifle and go join your army brethren and go get stuck in, uh, so that there's options for those for the French, for the British there's auxiliary military pioneer corps section. So so the uh, AMPC was not pioneers as you'd expect in a German uh, unit. Uh, the. F- the term was used in a completely different context. These were base. Well, it started off as un, as sort of semi-skilled, unskilled labourers. So these were reservists, elderly veterans, etc., who went along with the BEF to dig trenches and um, uh, and infrastructure. But uh, so you know, they were kind of seen very much as uh, third-rate soldiers initially. But there's a, uh, particularly around the again the coastal towns there's a lot of incidences of these guys who were not seen as you know a strong fighting unit who dug in got their rifles and and got stuck in just the same as anyone else and so the ampc evolved throughout the war into something which became a real badge of honor so uh that's an option for the british guys um scrolling through what else can we find um there's some erratas on um, – mm. uh, I've, I've, I've mentioned uh, that I had a, a lot of help from the German side of stuff. I had a great deal of help from the French side of things, um, and my go-to man in France uh, got in touch and said, look, there's um, there's some stuff we can do with the the, the French list where there's, there's some options which aren't there which should be. So stuff which is already in the Armies of France book uh, gets a few more options.
0: Nice.
1: Uh, so, um, yeah, which I'll, I'll get to as I'm scrolling through, still going through, um, mm-hmm. other new units, uh, we've talked about motorcycles already in platoons, mm-hmm. um, yeah, German light machine gun team. Uh, so, whereas we've got the medium machine guns at the moment, where, mm-hmm. which uses as per the norm, but uh, some second-line units within uh, the German army would have the, uh, a light machine gun. So, instead, of, it's effectively the same weapon. At this case, we're, look, uh, we're looking at the MG34, because mm-hmm. the MG42 later right but the mg34 you stick it on a bipod it's a light machine gun stick it on a tripod it's a medium machine gun right uh but there were teams whereby they had a frame where you could use it in a, a, a on a pintle mount so it could be used in an anti-aircraft role um but it wasn't tripod mounted so you can't really get that sustained fire out of it oh, so wow. for second line units you can now have german light machine gun te- teams which are cheaper and you can give the flak cruelty um yeah intelligence sections they come back again we've already had intelligence sections mm-hmm. in uh, other books but this is more with an early war slant on it so the makeup of those sections is slightly different cool. Um uh, what else have we got uh there's yeah a few special characters in there as well which mm-hmm. uh are standards um and as we were talking about earlier, with the errata stuff um, for the for the French, there's mm. a couple of new options for units which are already in there. So French officers, for example, given that we've uh, given all these options now for motorbike sidecar combos, you can add that to the officer. And likewise, if you wanted, um, well, if you've got a reinforced platoon, which has got at least two cavalry sections, then you can add horses to French officers as well and have them as, as cavalry officers. Cool. Um, we're now into the, back into the sordid realms of my French pronunciation, <laughs> but uh, uh, Chasseur and Dragon Portes. You mm-hmm. know, this is the this is the risk when your research is all done by reading and yeah, not by right. watching documentaries. You can't pronounce anything, but um, again, lots more motorbike options. The uh, the light mortar options we mentioned earlier, uh, VB groups. Um, so we've now got a Dragon Porter's VB group, which is uh, an NCO and three guys with rifles and launchers. Mm. Which again, you can put motorbikes and sidecars. Um, another another new one for the, uh, the Germans is um, uh, more uh, another uh, way of. Uh, using bicycle troops, uh, which in addition to the options which are already in armies of Germany. Uh, oh, and nice. then we're, we're back into the, the military police again, early war, um, which we've seen in Battle of the Bulge before. But this has got yeah, that, that early war slant on it instead.
0: Well, that's a lot of new options for French players to really tease out and to explore. Um, I know that that's a list that's been around for a long time. And sometimes people are like, oh, I wish you could add some stuff to it. Well, you just did.
1: But... Yeah, fingers crossed. It'll um, it'll hopefully give because I was pleasantly surprised by how many people are using early war French armies. Mm. Uh, this isn't a niche. This is a pretty popular area. Yes. So hopefully, uh, whilst this isn't going to revolutionise uh, everything, it's going to give a, a solid amount of new options um, and is uh, is going to help out those guys who who haven't seen as much exposure in other in other campaign books.
0: That's right. That's right. Well. Let's let's get on to the, the thing that, as, as exciting as all of this has been, and this has been really exciting, there is something at the end of this book that uh, you, oh, you yes. talked about off-air that has my bolt-action juices flowing in a big way. Please tell us more.
1: Right. Company Commander, yes. which is a, a new way of playing this, um... I'm excited and petrified about because this is the biggest risk I've taken with, uh, with playing with the, the mechanics of the game. Mm. Uh, I think this is going to be a bit of a um, p- people. I hope some people will love it. I'm expecting some people will hate it because uh, it is very, very different. It's basically a campaign mode. Um, nice. So what it is, is instead of saying, here's me with my reinforced platoon to go and fight one battle, Uh, And that's that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or linking um, a load of scenarios together. it's, It's a different way of facing it. So whereas a platoon would typically be led by a lieutenant, you're now in the role of a captain or a major so what you do is assemble a force which is two or three times the size of what you're used to assembling Mm -hmm. so instead of just saying here's me with a reinforced platoon you now take two or three reinforced platoons get them on paper you'll then have a company hq option you'll have company support options and you'll end up with a much larger force and that is to see you through uh, whatever you choose with your opponent be it three five ten linked battles up to you um And likewise, your opponent has got the same thing. So Mm -hmm. you're uh, replicating two companies which are opposite each other on the front line, and elements of those companies are, are facing each other day after day. So what you then do is um you're either choosing your scenarios or you randomly generate which scenario is heading your way but you you've then got a an element of randomization which is going to choose uh what what forces uh, you can actually send to it so you're not turning up with a whole company with three reinforced platoons on the table mm-hmm. uh you may be fighting two simultaneous battles So you may have to put uh, your first platoon on one table, which you'll play on one day, and then next weekend, the the second battle, which was going on further down the line Mm -hmm. at exactly the same time, your second platoon is there. So you've got to kind of box clever in how you're going to separate this company out. So once you're doing that, be it uh, concurrent activity or uh, battles one after the other, there's then mechanics for your casualty replacements, so after after the battle, depending on who's won, depends on who's more likely to recover their wounded. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to get replacement units come in, which there's a uh, set of tables to generate what's going to get replaced, at what level of experience, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can put in requests for certain types of units to, uh, to come in and replace. And also there's a... Um, Experienced development uh, side of things, so you could enter with your one of your platoon commanders being an inexperienced second lieutenant, and he could leave the campaign as a veteran, depending on how well he does. Uh, so, that, so there's a point system which basically determines their advancements and also um, they, they can generate special skills as well. So you can end up with units which are a little bit better. Than, uh, than, than what you buy straight out of the, the Army's books. Uh, but that's only for your core units, because otherwise, if you end up with a company where you're trying to manage all of that, it's just a, it becomes a management simulator, and it's no fun at all. Exactly. So, so what it's basically is, is for each platoon, your officer and your two core units are the, the star of the movie. They're the ones you're following. So it's, so it's only them that you're keeping your experience tab and tally on. Right. Uh, for the rest of it, they are, they are just normal units. Otherwise, it gets too unwieldy. Although, you know, if, if people really wanted to, the rules would allow if you really wanted to do the entire army, there's nothing stopping you. It's, uh, it's just what works for different people, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're following the narrative, I mean, if we think back to like Band of Brothers, we're just following Easy Company throughout the war. Yes. And so, again, you're following a couple of units and, and a lieutenant through the war. So, yeah, that makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that's where we're, we're trying to go with it. And it, it brings in some other um, some other special rules as well, which uh, actually, if you wanted to, you could just put into normal games of bolt action, for example, senior NCOs. So at the moment, a non-commissioned officer, uh, taking the one I'm most familiar with, is the, the British model of this, is if you have a rifle section of 10 guys, mm-hmm. that's going to be led by a corporal, um, and he'll have a lance corporal uh, normally in charge of the gun group. Uh, but a platoon will be led by a second lieutenant or lieutenant, but he would have a sergeant as his effectively as his, as his deputy. Although um, so some people would say it would be the sergeant running the company and just the the, the junior officer rubber stamping it. Mm-hmm. But um, we don't really have that mechanic in bolt action at the moment. No. You buy a left, and you can you can give him one or two guys who hang around with him. And because of the small unit rule, people tend to take one. Mm-hmm. Uh, fine. So what we've done here is say, actually, you can. Um, uh, th- th- there's the option now of saying that one of the um, that one of the guys hanging around with the officer is a senior NCO. So it's a sergeant, or so for higher up, the captains and majors, a, a sergeant major. Uh, and if the officer gets taken out, the sergeant is more than capable of carrying on and doing that job. So if you take out the officer, that isn't the unit gone. The sergeant steps up to the plate and he carries on. Wow. Uh, so it, it makes the unit more robust um, and arguably more realistic. Yeah. Uh, you know, if a lieutenant was killed, the platoon didn't just scatter. The sergeant would carry on and would do the job. And so, so this this uh, it's a relatively simple rule. This rule is in there to um, to do the same thing.
0: Fantastic. Well, this this sounds like a a very well thought out, well rounded set of rules. I given how long bolt action's been around. I'm honestly surprised we haven't had rules like this so far. Um, but this sounds like something I definitely want to play with a group of my friends. It sounds like you could even um, structure uh, maybe a one-day event or a weekend's worth of games with a group of friends around, not just uh, space it out over maybe a campaign over you know weeks, but you could do sort of as a, a condensed uh, game session. It would be a way of not taking your same army every time.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, and it's the that, that's certainly the idea. I think it'll it'll probably appeal more to the historical gamer there's mm. um, you know there's there's no way about it. This is a slower and more complex way of playing the game. Definitely, that um, you know there's um, there's tables to roll on in between each battle to determine your experience levels, your casualty replacements, all that sort of stuff. So um, you know, similar to some other games out there, um, which have that kind of. Uh, you know, some of the sports tabletop games where you're looking mm. at a team rather than uh, military side of things. Um, and you've got that kind of coaching element in between the game of trying to uh, shuffle your guys around and maximize on your experience. Mm. There's uh, there's a lot of that going on. Um, it's, it's, uh, it got pretty favorable reviews from the playtesting. It, it changed a lot in the playtesting. It's been simplified and streamlined a lot. Because when I initially did it, it was pages and pages and pages with flow charts telling you how <laughs> your, uh, all this works. And the playtesters came back and just said, look, yeah, it, it's, it's it's realistic, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's it's mind-bogglingly <laughs> complex. <laughs> so, so let's just streamline it and let's do what Bolt Action does, mm-hmm. which is table-based, slick and fast. So we restructured it based on the playtesters' advice uh, and it, it, it's um, it's faster now it, it will still make the game slower as I said there's there's no two ways about that uh, but it, like everything in these books it's purely voluntary if people don't want to do it there's no one forcing you to do it and um, you know it's not like people are going to turn up at a tournament and be told you have to do this that's 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 not the intention that's not the way so as with all of these books uh, players pick and choose what they like and if there's bits you don't like then then give it a stiff ignoring that's that's no probs exactly. it's just the book is supposed to be, here is a whole toolbox of new stuff to appeal to as wide a variety of people as possible. And what one person may love, someone else may hate. We, we acknowledge that. So it's it's just there to say, pick the bits you like, ignore the bits you don't like. Those bits you don't like, someone else will. It, that that was aimed at a different kind of player.
0: Nice. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, just, I'm so excited to get my hands on that. I mean, the whole book, but that part of the book in particular and uh, get it cracking open and get some games going. Oh, Mark, I got to say, it is always a pleasure having you on uh, any podcast and just hearing the ideas that are pouring out of your head. Um, is there anything else? I mean, our time is coming to a close. Uh, is there any, any other little tidbits you want to share or should we, uh, should we just, um, you know, cross our fingers and wait until it comes out? Uh, is this, I,
1: I think, um, the only other tip is, as you said, uh, given the timeframes with the recording, elements of uh, by, by the time this is released, uh, elements of what I'm talking about now uh, will already have hit the shelves, but elements won't. Uh, hopefully, by the time this has hit the streets, uh, there'll be some uh, free downloadable PDFs out, which yes. are on... Um, basically support platoons so instead of having a rifle platoon mm-hmm. uh, and this is stuff that started as early as Battle of the Bulge, that when we did the American anti-tank platoon yes. so instead of your uh, infantry sections, infantry squads in the US Army case mm-hmm. that um, y- you've now got, uh, here's two or three anti-tank guns Um, we've sort of taken that idea and run with it so uh, there's going to be a uh, uh, there are drafts at the moment for a British, German American and Japanese uh, support theatre selector downloadable PDF which gives you options for mortar platoons uh, heavy machine, well medium machine gun platoons um, artillery batteries, all this sort of stuff and new bespoke rules for Uh, Support officers, so officers who who don't specialise in leading infantry uh, sections, they specialise in taking charge of mortars and machine guns. Uh, So so that's going on, and also the very 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 first thing I did was uh, for Bolt Action was the Four Seven Commando list. That's right. Which was uh, yeah Royal Marine Commandos at D Day. Mm -hmm. It's been years years since i did that so i revisited it and thought first off bolt action v2 and second off with a bit more experience now mm-hmm. can i do better um and it kind of grew arms and legs and it's now 40 pages long wow uh, And it's um, it has I don't know how many new units, but it basically if you use British commandos, the idea was this will be this almost replaces uh, Armies of Great Britain if you're a commando player. So it gives options early, mid, late war, uh, Mediterranean, northwest Europe and uh, the Far East. Uh, Army, uh, Royal Marine and Royal Navy commandos beach parties, uh, raiding parties in the early war period uh, everything. I've uh, I've tried to just write a document which from a historic point of view it follows that same thought process as 4-7 commando but just gives every option I possibly could find uh, decent historical references for. So the commando players can now play nearly not by every but nearly any theater any year in the war and have options open to him
0: that's fantastic when do you expect that to be out
1: oh gosh i think that's going to be quite a long time uh because i i had uh, a bit of time to myself and i wrote a whole load of these and there's a release schedule for them and i think the support uh, platoons for the four nations we've done are going to be first Mm -hmm. then it'll be books and then Again, it's in its early days and it'll need uh, a lot of play testing and proofreading. I did the same for US Rangers as well. Ooh. So there's a, it, it, it's not 40 pages because there just simply wasn't much stuff. The Rangers uh, didn't get the same they didn't have that early war uh, period to right. be. Uh, so, so, it's, so it's mid and late war. Uh, but yeah, there's a relatively extensive document giving US Rangers players a whole load of options as well uh new units. Wow.
0: I, I blown away. I didn't know any of those things were coming and I'm excited about all of them. Oh, that is fantastic news. Uh, and those will be, so to, to find those, we should be keeping our eyes peeled, um, to the weekly warlord, um, uh, news emails. Uh, and yeah. we should be checking the website regularly.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the emails that are coming out twice a week—that's mm. that—that's when it'll be announced as and when the, the, this stuff's yeah, getting released. But um, so again, to, to manage expectation realistically, um, for some of these six pages, uh, they should hopefully be relatively thick and fast. But for some of the more extensive ones, there's—they're uh, in draft format, mm. uh, so there's still a lot of work to be done. And for, for the guys at Warlord HQ as well, um, it, it, the, the presentation of it—you know—there's photo shoots to be done to support mm-hmm. this stuff. It's all of the actual um, graphical design of the PDFs and that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. So there's still quite a lot of work to be done uh and um yeah wh- when we get external eyes in to look at it there may well be a you know a big moment of hang on that's a game breaker in which case we're back to the drawing board and that may cause delays but i'm sure you know anyone listening to this will agree that it's better for delays rather than for a rushed product which is going to break the game Amen. so it, it, if there are delays it's for a good reason it's, it's because we want to get the job done properly uh and not ruin things
0: Fantastic. Well, oh, you've given us so many things to look forward to. I hate to say goodnight, but I I think it is about that time. Um, God, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. Please come on again soon. Uh, Every time I've talked to you, I have walked away with a a giant gleam in my eye and uh, bad ideas rolling around in my head uh, of, uh, you know, more figure cases I have to fill. But (laughs) Oh, that is exciting stuff. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you have any feedback, uh, for Mark or for me, um, as the, as the, the quote unquote host of this show, um, please let us know. Um, I can be reached. My name is Brad. Um, My other podcast that I do alongside this is called Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. I I say that because if you type Cast Dice into Facebook, um, you will find a webpage called The Land O' Misfit Toys slash the home of the Cast Dice podcast. And you can... um, You can message me directly there um, with anything you would like to hear for this podcast uh, or just kind words if you have some. Believe me, we always take those. Uh, But again, guys, we know that there are so many podcasts that you can listen to these days um, that are just wonderful and are just great to listen to. It is just wonderful that you've taken the time to listen to ours this fine day. Uh, Thank you very much. Your time is appreciated. Thank you. And good night.